0: A little warm, you can go sit back by the fan if that's, if that's you. That's a good idea. All right, Acts chapter two. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are here with us. Um, even as Michael just had us be still, and think of the psalm, be still, and know that you are God, whether in the midst of personal chaos, just minor problems that can frustrate us or big things, that your presence is with us. And we thank you for that. Um, Pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning. Be our hope, be our joy in Jesus' name. amen. 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 All right. Let's read some scripture and then we'll get into this. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you are with us last week, we tackled a little bit on the Holy Spirit. We've done a lot of work on the Holy Spirit in the past. Let me continue to read now. Verse 5. Now... There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians—it's a lot. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, "What does this mean?" But others mocking said, "They're filled with new wine; they're drunk." But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. This is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the Pro- prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone in here, maybe even recently or in the last few years, ever gone through the moving process from one home to another, be it an apartment or a house, yeah, what's the best part of moving? The end, end, yeah, (gasps) yeah, I'm throwing softballs out this morning, should be really fun. The end is the best part, why? Because the end, when you finally, if you're a college student, get your top ramen unpacked and your box spring on the ground, and your TV with cords running everywhere all set up. Or if you get your nice bed put up and um, single dudes, there's this thing called a duvet. And you'll buy one someday when you're married, I promise. It goes over the thing you sleep on. Did I get that right, hon? Yeah, ish. And a thing called a bed skirt. Don't, don't get those on in the wrong order. Otherwise, you're redoing everything. Now, you get all this done and the end is the best. Why? Because you take up rest and rule in your household, right? You take up rest and rule. You're done with the completed job and you have this moment where you sit on your couch, you lay on your bed, you get on your beanbags and you sit there and go, this feels great. But the reality and the truth is just because you're done setting now, that doesn't mean you stop in that household ruling. You still have to clean the sink and wash out your dishwasher, believe it or not, because it gets filthy and you have rules and things you need to do. And as we look at the scriptures today, we're going to see this theme of rest and rule come up in the theme of temple. And really this morning, we're going to see a tale of two temples here in Acts. Uh, The temple that once was and the new temple that Jesus initiates. And if you've been here some time, we've done some work here and there's some things you're going to go, I remember this and I remember that. And I would say, great, I applaud you. Every time I think through this theme, this idea of temple, something new comes at me. Kind of like looking at a prism and seeing it at a different angle and going, ah, I get it the story of God and how it's connected in this bigness and vastness and how God is moving in our lives. And so we're gonna have this 10,000-foot view of Acts 2, of this new temple that the Holy Spirit ushers in versus that of the old temple and how God is working in and through us. And in the scriptures, you see four movements of temple. Four movements of temple. Now, when you think about temple... It's really not an exciting topic, is it? Maybe you've traveled to other countries and you've been able to visit and see from a distance or maybe some of you got up close. Uh, When I was in Israel, I was 14 years old and you saw the Dome of the Rock there on the Temple Mount where uh, the Muslim sacred holy shrine is in the Jerusalem area. And and you can look at it and you can kind of get close and near to it, at least when I was there way, 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 way back then, all right? Might be dating myself a little bit there. When we think about temples here in our culture, we don't really give a lot of thought to them, but they're actually a dominant theme in the scriptures. For example, they kind of come up subtly in the New Testament. In John 1, which we'll look at later, verse 14, it says that Jesus tabernacled, he templed, he dwelt among us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says that you are living stones, essentially making up this living temple. There's some very clear examples of temple in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is writing to the church and he says, in your English translations, you, your body, is God's temple. And everybody's like, my body's a temple. Watch out what I put into it. Really what Paul is saying is, in your best Texan accent, y'all are a temple, the church. Y'all are a temple. So watch, have unity, be in unison with one another. First Corinthians is the same uh, idea in chapter six as well. What is a temple? I'm going to give you kind of my written definition, and then I'll give you Tim Mackey's, who's way smarter and better than me. I would say a temple is a place people believe that the God or gods and man could come and meet together. They are considered a holy or sacred place, often involving worship and prayer, sacrifices. It's where religious activity would happen. As Tim Mackey says, a temple is a unique space where our areas overlap with the divine. Do you to remember this? where our areas or our space, it overlaps with the divine. Then he goes on to say and talk about the first movement in scripture of temple. He says, Eden was the space, place, where God's space and man's space overlapped. So whenever you hear the word temple throughout scripture, there's this idea that they represented a place that was transcendent. Something bigger than yourself. As C.S. Lewis talks about, we're often finding ourselves standing on the edge of a shore, reaching out, knowing there's something greater than ourselves out there. To not think that, that there's something greater than you, whether you want to identify that being or not, is to think of yourself in a very superior position that you are possibly Mankind, the smartest beings on the face of the planet, the universe, so on and so forth. We all have this longing desire intrinsically that want to connect to something that's far greater than us. And temples were a way in which humans would come and try to meet with the God of Scripture or the gods that they worshipped in that way. Now, when we look at Scripture... When we look at temples, we're going to see this connection all throughout it about entering back into the garden and humanity being reconciled with God and man. In fact, in Psalm 78, verse 69, it says, he built his sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth, which he founded forever. There's a scholar, his last name is Levinson, and he says, texts describing the creation of the world and those describing the construction of a shrine or parallel the temple and the world stand in an intimate and intrinsic connection. The two projects cannot be ultimately distinguished or disengaged. Each recounts how God brought an environment in which he can find rest. So when we look at scripture, there's four movements of temple. There is Genesis 1 and 2. You have the garden temple. We're going to just take like two minutes to look at that. Then you see in Exodus... And then into the history of Israel, 1 Kings, Second Chronicles, there is the tabernacle that moved along with the Israelites. And then in addition to that, there was an actual physical temple that they built. Then in John 1, you see this new tabernacle in Jesus. The language is uncanny. It's intentional, very purposeful, that he came, tabernacled, and dwelt among us And then in Acts 2, what we're going to find is this surprising idea of the temple. And then what we will not get to, and you can look at Revelation 21, really this temple come down, the new temple. If you have a Bible, you can flip over to Genesis. We're just going to look in chapter 2. Surprise, surprise, we make our way back here. It says, 2-1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished good news. It's like moving in, right? And all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And what does he do? He rested. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work he had done in creation. And then if you look over at verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. What this means, what this looks like, is just like what I shared, like moving into a new place. It's like we move into a new place and take up rest, and then we have rule. In the garden there, God had taken up his rest. It's done. It's completed. It's finished. And then he initiates his rule, and his intention is to rule the world through humans. And there's this Intermingling, if you would, are overlapping in which God's space and man's space comes together and they spend time with one another and yet God is ruling through humans, asking them, telling them, I want you to go cultivate, make things beautiful, be creative, do all of this great stuff and if you follow the storyline of the Bible, that lasts about that long. We actually don't know how long they were in there before they decided, God, you don't know as good as us. We're gonna do this in our own way, our own terms. We know better. And so what the Bible refers to as the fall of man is really this rebellion that says, God, we want to do things our way. But it doesn't end the story there. God has a desire and a plan to bring humans back to him, to reconcile, to be in the garden together once again, a place of peace, shalom, rest, and right rule. And what he's going to do is he works through Abraham and his family. And the lineage of Abraham goes down, and you see their story throughout the end of Genesis, middle to end of Genesis, and then into Exodus. And they escape the grass of Pharaoh, they cross the sea, and Moses is their leader at that time, and he gets this call from God to go up on this mountain, to come back down with instruction, to talk to the Israelites about. One, you're going to build this tabernacle, this dwelling place for me, God. Two, I'm going to tell you how to live, how to be. And it's really interesting. If you turn to Exodus, if you want to, it's just one book over from Genesis. And you can go to Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus 19, verse 16, it says, On the third morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud. The Bible's filled with all kinds of beautiful imagery in the scripture. And when you see this idea of the thick cloud, it's the same kind of cloud that led the Israelites by day out of Egypt. And now Moses, around this mountain, is in the presence of God, this cloud representing, signifying the presence of God with them. And it says, On the mountain, in a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. This is really amazing. Here's this God who says, I have delivered you and I love you and I want to be in relationship with you just like that in the Garden of Eden. God's intention is to dwell in the presence with man together. And so here he's going to work through the Israelites and he says, let's come together and he invites them to the base of this mountain. So they can all come out and meet Yahweh, this great, amazing God. And it says in verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Start thinking what we just read this morning in, Exodus, or in Acts. What was with them? Was fire, these cloven tongues had come down on them. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. What we see here in Exodus in the second movement of the temple in the tabernacle is God's presence with humans. Now this is, this is going somewhere so let me just take you one more place. The tabernacle is kind of going away. Israel's been established as a nation David wanted to build this house for the Lord. He said, ah, your hands are bloody, David. You can't, but Solomon can. So you start gathering the materials. Solomon is going to build this house. And in 1 Kings 8, verse 11, the temple is being inaugurated. It's being initiated. It's being established and in verse 10, it says, and when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud of glory in the house of the Lord. And you can just write this one down in Second Chronicles 7.1, telling the same story. As soon as Solomon had finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It's cool. You see both in Exodus and now here in Kings and Chronicles. This magnificent magnificent display of God coming down and being with his people. And you could see that there was this strong desire for them to come to the temple and to worship him. And if you read Exodus Law and you read Deuteronomy, you read things like God saying Israelites, if you do this, I'm going to abide with you. I'm going to be with you. And if you don't do this, then I'm going to remove my presence from you and destruction's going to happen. And as you look at the story of Israel, they do not walk in the ways of God. They turn their back on him. Now in their minds, they think things are great because they have a building which houses the presence of God, as if you could do such a thing. They would go to this building and sing songs and sacrifice, and they would go home and commit all kinds of acts of adultery and murders and lies and ripping their neighbors off. And yet they would, in their minds, think, we're pretty good because we're following Yahweh in the temple. We've got our God boxed in. We've got things dialed in. And so Jeremiah comes in Jeremiah 7 and he warns the Israelites that the presence of God is going to leave you because your life is not really following his desires, what he's established, what he's set up. They were in this religious mindset, not fixated on who God is and a relationship with him, but that they were simply okay because they had God boxed in. Well, as that story progresses, you get some prophets who come on the scene. And they begin to discuss and talk about this temple being destroyed, which it was, and then a new temple that would come. In fact, in Ezekiel, he gets this message that there would be a future restored temple. And in chapters 40 through 43, he gets a virtual Zillow display of what it looks like in there. This is where this is going to be and this is where that's going to be. And then the prophet Joel, he speaks out the very words that Peter quotes. And you see... This end of that second movement of the temple. And as you read the Old Testament, you get left off in a very dreary, sad spot. Israel, coming back to the land, they've got some sort of temple structure built, but it's not functioning in the way that it used to function. And then in John 1, we read that very interesting line in verse 14. The word being Jesus, became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word is God. So now you have God himself coming down in the form of flesh, and what does he do? He tabernacles and dwells, dwells, dwelt among us. I want to just emphasize that. Just like that in the garden, in Exodus, and in Kings, God comes and he dwells amongst his people. But this is a little bit different than anything they'd seen in Israel before because this temple that it comes. It's not just fixated in one spot, but he is a person himself and he is going forth and bringing healing and goodness and mercy and love. And in Matthew 5, he's giving this Sermon on the Mount about law and how to live and how to be. And people hate him and they want to kill and murder him because it's different than their religiosity. And it comes to a culmination in Matthew Right around, I think, chapter 15, when Jesus shows up to, excuse me, 21, where he shows up to the temple, and he gives the same kind of speech that Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7 is given. And it's deja vu all over again. You Israelites, you're just religious, but you don't know me. You come, you give a little bit of money, you sing some songs, you celebrate, and then you go home. And that's the extent of your relationship with God. But that's not what he is looking for. And you see this almost symbolic reenactment of what Jeremiah 7 did. And everybody in the temple understood what Jesus was doing and they were angry. They were mad at him. Destroy this temple. You're going to destroy this temple. And Jesus says, You destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And as this story progresses, There's an intent and a purpose behind it. As the story moves forward, Jesus tells his disciples later that, hey, I have to go. And when I go, you're going to have the spirit who comes to comfort you. You're gonna have the spirit who comes and fills your life. And that's where we sort of picked up in Acts. That's a long intro, don't worry. I don't have a lot in the middle and the end will be just application. Promise you guys. But here's where we're at in the story of Acts and why this is so important for us understanding the big picture of what God is doing. In Acts chapter 2, as the disciples are waiting on the Lord, as they were told to do from Acts chapter 1, we see a few things that are just absolutely uncanny to the story of God. What, What happened there? It says there was a wind that came in, it's the Spirit. There's fire that comes down upon them. It's the Spirit. When those things happened in the Old Testament, what did it mean? It meant the presence of God was in that place. But what happens in this story? What makes this story so different? The presence of God is not just inhabiting a facility, a building, a temple, but the Spirit of God is actually coming into you personally, And that's why Peter gets up and he begins to speak. This is what Joel prophesied. This is what Joel talked about. The spirit of God is now indwelling you. And instead of one temple in which you come to, y'all, y'all are the temple. And this temple then goes out from your homes to your workplaces, to your schools, to your neighborhoods. And you are, you are all the presence of God, representations of who he is and what he wants to do in people's lives. This is why this is phenomenal. This is why this is just kind of mind-blowing and incredible because in the day of Jesus, if I was like, hey, do you want to get to know my God? And somebody might go, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of interested. Do you serve Zeus? Do you serve Apollos, Aphrodites? And I'd say, why don't you come over to my temple? And here's my temple, and you can come learn all about my God at my temple. And you can see our statues, and you can see the way we worship. Why, though, is this so different? Nobody could fathom, in that day and age, a religion without a temple. But Christianity wasn't a religion without a temple, was it? Y'all are the temple. Y'all represent as you go forth and move out into the world, you are communities of people who God rests and rules. He rests in you, he rules over you, and you go out because of what he has done in us. No longer just a structure where religious activity takes place. Come to my temple and we'll do the religious things. Come to my temple and we'll worship God together. But it's Hey, we're going to come together and gather and learn? Absolutely. But you all are the temple as you move outside of here, a place in which ministry flows out of, not that you just have to come to to participate in. And what we see in Acts from 2 to 4, and we'll get a little bit more in detail as the weeks continue on, but we see this new temple of people who are, in Acts 2.42, gathering like they did in that day for fellowship, for breaking of bread, for worship, right? For prayer. But not only did they simply gather to do that, they, as you read Acts 2, 3, and 4, moved out like Peter and he heals this blind man. And then they begin to sell their possessions, not in some communistic kind of way, but out of love for their neighbor saying, hey, you have need? We want to meet those needs. Did you know in Deuteronomy law, it was the temple that was supposed to be taking care of the poor? And what's intriguing is in Acts chapter four, you get this weird kind of story that bookends this section of scripture where it's the church that's selling things and taking care of one another, doing the very things the temple should have been doing. The temple and its people, its religious rulers, they persecute the movement and ministry of these disciples. But it's this church who then is acting and flowing in love and mercy and kindness as they move out into the world. Luke is incredibly intentional in how he's placing these stories together and trying to shake its reader to see this is the new way. What is it? The shared space now that the Holy Spirit takes up in your life and it begins to change you personally. That's what's happening in Acts. You're not just simply moving into God's house God's moving in to your life. As you submit to him, give your life to him, what does that mean? Anybody ever shared a space with somebody before? A child? A spouse? I don't know, a roommate? All right. Um, I don't know if you can tell from me, uh, but I'm just kind of like a hot mess everywhere I go. So everything is just chaos. You open our car door and like stuff might flow out. And we have four kids. That's kind of life. Um, my cars are dirty 98% of the time. It's not because I don't care about them. We live on a very dirty, dusty road. A- and my wife is the exact uh, opposite of that. She likes clean. She likes to clean the kitchen before dinner, clean the kitchen during dinner, clean the kitchen after dinner, and then after snack, wonder why the kitchen is not clean. Okay, so maybe you know those kinds of people. And we have different standards of cleanliness. Uh, We have different standards on how towels get hung in our house. Yeah, did you know that's a thing? (laughs) You can tell I've probably been in the hot seat one or two or a lot of times on this. Now, there's nothing wrong with how she likes things. In fact, um, when I do dishes, I didn't know I was supposed to clean the sink out until halfway through our marriage. So sweet like bread. Yeah. How come you never just rinse all the food out of the sink when you're done doing the dishes? It was always just done after me. I don't know. <laughs> Who does that? And so I learned in sharing a space with my wife that the way I functioned wasn't healthy. That the way I did things wasn't the best way to do things. And I hope I rubbed off on her in some way or another. Who who knows? Now, I want you to think about that. Shared space. The Holy Spirit comes into your life. You're a temple. Yeah. And the Spirit fills you. What do you think the Spirit's gonna do? Begin to deal with things in your life that aren't healthy. Truly. If you're a follower of Jesus, I love how Tim Keller puts it. You'll begin to hate the things you loved and love the things you hate. When you become a follower of Jesus, there are things that you used to do before following Jesus, ways you used to live, ways you used to treat people, maybe in efforts to get ahead in your own life, you trample over them, tell little lies to get ahead. And all of a sudden the spirit comes in shakes you up a little bit and goes, I'm not cool with that. And even if it means setting yourself back a little bit because in reality, that's what we're to do. We're to lower ourselves, to lift other people up and the spirit begins to move on your heart and you go, I don't love doing those things anymore because that's what life is not about. And the spirit works and moves in you and now you begin to love things you used to hate like, shoot, why am I at church every week all of a sudden? And these Christians that used to just annoy the out of me. Like, why do I love them now? Why do I care about them? Even when they still bug me, I still love them. What is God doing in my life? And the spirit begins to move in our lives personally because he's taken up residence because here's the deal. Y'all are a temple. That's what God has done. Not only that, and here's the other way that this begins to get into us and change us. The spirit begins to influence your actions in the world. In 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, so travelers, exiles, those who don't quite fit in. If you're a Christian and you're like, man, I just don't don't fit in. I don't fit in in the way that everybody else is either on one extreme or the other extreme, and I just kind of feel like I'm wandering. He says, yes, you're exiles. Abstain from the passions of your flesh. That's gonna make you a little weird in our culture today which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, how you live amongst the Gentiles, which they kind of lived however they pleased, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You want to see my God? Look at my life, is what Peter's saying to the church. Look at my life. And does it reflect and represent this great God? And what happens is we begin to live from the inside out as the spirit begins to transform and change us. It then changes our motives and our actions and how we love and treat other people. And the spirit begins to work on your heart. People that were once unforgivable become forgivable. People that don't deserve your mercy now get your mercy. As we looked at last week, because of Power from outside of you has moved into you. The Spirit has taken up residence in you, the temple, and now empowers and influences your life to live differently. And this is, this is God's intent in our lives. Yes, the Holy Spirit seals you, the Holy Spirit saves you, the Holy Spirit keeps you, but not to remain in the same place that you're at, to go be an influence in the world out there. So what we have to do in our lives is kind of undo a lot of our thinking of this place is a sanctuary or a temple. This place is where the ministry happens. I think ministry happens in here by the way. Prayer happens. We care for one another. We meet each other's needs. But what I think does happen in our lives, if you're anything like me, you kind of go, man, there are so many problems in the world. I just open my Facebook and I'm like, these people need help and those people need help and that country is in dire need of saving and they need food and, oh, it's too much. You can't even do anything. It's kind of how we feel. But what I think for our church and what I want you to hear this morning, if we want to get this into our lives, is this. In what little ways does the Spirit want you to go represent him in your world, in your neighborhood? What neighbor needs a meal this week? Or on the meal train that might or might not pop up when somebody has a baby in our church. My wife and I were just so incredibly overwhelmed. We got evacuated Friday night. That fire was about a mile from our house. And she has a lot more friends than me, so she posted something and I posted something. And I had like five people like, you can come stay here. We had people, you can bring your animals here. She had like 500 invitations, but who wouldn't want just to go hang out in their house, right? And we just kind of sat back and went, that's cool stuff. Even though we didn't need it, we had a parking lot party instead and sat in the back of the truck till the fire passed by with the kids and the animals. That's the small stuff that impacts people's lives. No, you can't rescue everybody up there and house them all. Maybe one person. Maybe there's one person you can go to today and forgive. One person you can go to and show mercy and love. And you, the temple, can say, look, I do this because of the God that dwells within me and resides over me. That's, that's what we see happening in Acts. That's what we get to go participate in and be a part of. And I'm excited for how our church does that going forward. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you take up residence in our lives. And that in your story, you indwell us and unite us and make us whole in you. And that we get to invite other people into that story. Help us to see the opportunities that are presented Help us to live that out in our lives. We give you praise, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, a couple of things. Michael's gonna uh, lead us in a song, and during the song, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is communion available up front. We would invite you to take it with us. I'll pray over it this morning, and then we'll close in another song. There's an offering box kind of back there in the back to give to what God is doing here at this church. But I really want you to think about in this moment, how can I, as the temple, go reflect and image God to the world around me? Lord, how would you move on my heart this morning? So why don't we stand if you're able? If not, that's cool. You can stay seated. If you're able, let's stand. Let's sing. Let's come to the table to grab communion up here. and then. We'll